Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello, everybody. This is CJ, and I'm back after being kind of incognito incommunicado for a while. And what's going on was I've been having some medical issues that I won't get into here in detail, other than to say they've been dogging me for a few weeks, and it's been causing me enough issues, including off and on pain bouts, that it's really been hobbling my ability to be as productive on DHP-related stuff as I normally would be. And so it slowed me down. It hasn't stopped me, but it slowed me down. And just in the last few days, I've started to turn a corner. I'm still not 100% better, but I'm at least most of the way better at this point, it seems like. So anyway, this episode is going to contain a sample, a chunk of, not the entirety of, the very first lecture in my very first Dangerous History Lyceum online lecture course. This is going to contain a chunk of lecture zero in my first course that I'm making called Rise of the American Empire, where I introduce the course and some of its concepts and things. And so if you're already a supporter of the show through either Patreon or Subscribestar at 15 bucks per month or higher, you'll be getting that lecture in its entirety with no ads. So just go listen to it there. But I'm putting this out for the public feed and also for my supporters through Patreon and Subscribestar at lower levels of support than 15 an hour so that you can get a sample of what to expect and hopefully so that more of you will consider signing up to support my work at 15 bucks per month or higher because that's how you get access to these Dangerous History Lyceum lecture courses as I make them. This is going to be the first lecture in the first course and I'm going to try to put out a course and I'm going to try to put out a lecture about once a month at least. So how many lectures will be in this one? How long it'll take to do? I don't know for sure. But again, if you want access to this course and any future courses I make, sign up to support the show at Patreon or Subscribestar at $15 per month or higher. In addition to all the benefits you get for the lower levels of support, you will also get access to these Dangerous History Lyceum lecture courses. So without further delay, here is a good bit, pretty big sample chunk out of Lecture Zero, the course introductory lecture of Rise of the American Empire, my very first Dangerous History Lyceum course.
we shall form to the American Union a barrier against the dangerous extension of the British province of Canada and add to the empire of liberty an extensive and fertile country, thereby converting dangerous enemies into valuable friends. Thomas Jefferson, 1780 This form of government, in order to effect its purposes, must operate not within a small, but an extensive sphere. James Madison to Thomas Jefferson, 1787 Our success furnishes a new proof of the falsehood of Montesquieu's doctrine that a republic can be preserved only in a small territory. The reverse is the truth. Thomas Jefferson, 1801 I am persuaded no constitution was ever before as well calculated as ours for extensive empire and self-government. Thomas Jefferson, 1809 The acquisition of Canada this year as far as the neighborhood of Quebec will be a mere matter of marching and will give us experience for the attack on Halifax, the next, and the final expulsion of England from the American continent. Thomas Jefferson, 1812. Our system will fit a larger empire than ever yet existed, and I have long believed that such an empire will rise in America and give quiet to the world. Matthew Lyon, 1816. There has never been a constitution or government which admitted such an indefinite and unlimited extension of territory or population as our own. Nay, more which so required extension for success. William W. Greenow, 1849 We are the most ambitious people the world has ever seen, and I greatly fear we shall sacrifice our liberties to our imperial dreams. Henry J. Raymond, 1864 We are rapidly utilizing the whole of our continental territory. We must turn our eyes abroad, or they will soon look inward upon discontent. John Adam Casson, 1881 That which is good for communities in America is good for the Armenians and Greeks and Mohammedans of Turkey. The American Board of Foreign Missions, 1881 This great democracy is moving onward to its great destiny. Woe to the men or to the nations who try to bar its imperial march. Henry Cabot Lodge, 1896. It seems to be conceded that every year we shall be confronted with an increasing surplus of manufactured goods for sale in foreign markets if American operatives and artisans are to be kept employed the year round. The enlargement of foreign consumption of the products of our mills and workshops has, therefore, become a serious problem of statesmanship as well as of commerce. The U.S. State Department. 1898. Chronic wrongdoing, or an impotence which results in a general loosening of the ties of civilized society, may, in the Western Hemisphere, force the United States, however reluctantly, to the exercise of an international police power. Theodore Roosevelt, 1904. Our industries have expanded to such a point that they will burst their jackets if they cannot find a free outlet to the markets of the world. Our domestic markets no longer suffice. We need foreign markets. Woodrow Wilson, 1912 The world must be made safe for democracy.
Woodrow Wilson, 1917. The free peoples of the world look to us for support in maintaining their freedoms. Harry Truman, 1947. Our frontiers today are on every continent, stretching 10,000 miles across the Pacific and three and 4,000 miles across the Atlantic and thousands of miles to the south. John F. Kennedy, 1960. We will rid the world of evildoers. George W. Bush, 2001. Space Force all the way. Donald J. Trump. Tweet from August 9th, 2018. Scholar Warriors, this is CJ, and welcome to the very beginning of the Dangerous History Lyceum. This is Lecture Zero in my very first DHL course, Rise of the American Empire. And I mentioned this a little bit back when I did my five-year anniversary episode and first mentioned that I was working behind the scenes on this DHL idea. But basically, I decided to call these online lecture courses Dangerous History Lyceum instead of Academy or something like this, because in part, I like Aristotle better than Plato, and Aristotle, of course, called his school the Lyceum, Plato called his the Academy. And then the other reason is there's the um, more recent American historical reason that there was something in 19th century America called the Lyceum Movement that was very much about adults engaging in self-directed learning and education either just intrinsically for its own sake or as part of self-improvement. And I really like that idea, and it kind of inspires me, and it's what I have envisioned for the sorts of things I'm doing here and may, may well do in other venues with other subjects down the road. Now, as for this particular course, in the remainder of this lecture, I'm going to be introducing a lot of the key ideas I'm going to be getting into here and kind of laying a lot of the groundwork for what this is going to be about. But at this point, I really do not know how many lectures this will be. As always, I'll be building it as I go. And 
it's going to be, you know, if you like my podcast, you'll probably enjoy these, I would assume. But I will tell you, this is going to lean a little bit more towards the teaching side of the equation than the entertaining side of the equation. You know, the, the podcast is always a mixture of teaching and entertaining. And this will be as well. I don't think you can teach effectively without at least some degree of entertainment going on because you have to hold people's interests and make them want to listen to you. But in these DHL lectures, it's maybe going to be leaning a little bit more towards just the pure teaching side of things and, you know, correspondingly a little bit less on the entertainment side. Though, of course, I'm as always going to do my best to make it interesting and entertaining as well as educational. So this course, as you know, is called Rise of the American Empire, and I'm going to be looking at American history from independence through to the present era, more or less, a very much a big picture survey course. But of course, we'll be zooming in on particular topics and stories and so on as we go along, looking at the rise of the American Empire using the same sorts of analytical tools that have been used far more frequently and extensively to look at the famous empires of history, the empires that no one really doubts or disputes were, in fact, empires. You know, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, the Spanish Empire, the British Empire, and so forth, to name just a few of the most famous ones. There's particular terminology and particular analytical approaches that have been developed by historians, political scientists, and people from other academic disciplines to try to understand these empires and how they were built and how they operated and how they inevitably declined and ended and to be able to compare and contrast different empires with each other. There's this whole literature of studying empires as a historical phenomenon. And some of this has been applied to the American empire and used to try to understand it better. But in my mind, this imperial lens hasn't been used nearly enough to try to understand the whole grand sweep of U.S. history and to put it in its world historical context and to see what it is that we're really looking at. The imperial lens hasn't been employed enough in academia, even though by and large, most serious historians of American foreign policy and wars are much quicker to acknowledge that the U.S. is some sort of an empire than our amateur historians or the general public. There have been some excellent books written by academics looking at American history this way, and of course I'll be citing and referring to many of them throughout this course. But in my mind, this way of looking at things simply hasn't been used enough or gotten the attention it deserves, even within academic history, as a way to look at and understand American history. And it's been employed much, much less in so-called popular history aimed at the general public and so much of the general public doesn't even have the slightest clue that the U.S. blatantly fills all of the main defining characteristics of an empire. By the way, I think I'm pretty well qualified to do this course, perhaps even uniquely so, because when I was in graduate school, my primary field of study was the British Empire, and my secondary field of study was U.S. history. And it was actually this experience that first made me realize that the U.S. is, in fact, an empire. The reason is that I was, of course, spending a lot of time studying deeply the history of the British Empire, which is close enough in time, it was kind of the last superpower global empire before the American Empire took its place. And of course, it's the closest empire in history, not just in time, but also in terms of overall culture, since 
the American Empire is an English-speaking empire derived from the British Empire and descended from it, and that shares a lot of its broad culture and values, though obviously those things aren't identical between the two empires. But I think it was important that I was studying an empire in graduate school, the British Empire, that I had a great curiosity about, but that I had no sentimental attachment to and no brainwashing in regard to. Americans are generally raised by their institutions and their family and the entertainment media and so forth to believe that the U.S. is damn near the opposite of an empire. And they're indoctrinated with this ridiculous notion that the U.S. always has been and still is this humble little commercial republic whose default position is always peace and isolationism. But doggone it, it just keeps having to engage in purely defensive wars of necessity despite its best efforts. And so, most Americans are indoctrinated in the idea that the U.S. is simply the furthest thing from an empire imaginable. And I was raised in a fairly right-wing nationalistic household, with a lot of veterans and active military in my extended family, and so I was no different in this regard, in terms of my upbringing and indoctrination. But by spending several years deeply studying the British Empire, I was looking at something I had no real indoctrination in regard to, no sentimental or emotional attachments to. And that meant I didn't have those sorts of things that would lead me somehow to try to pretend that the British Empire was not an empire, or to turn a blind eye toward maybe the darker aspects of that empire's history. Furthermore, it also helped that the British Empire proudly and openly called itself an empire, and that no historian or analyst has ever seriously questioned that characterization. So there I was, studying the British Empire deeply. Meanwhile, these are the George W. Bush years, so I'm seeing the train wreck disaster that was Bush's wars unfold in real time on the news. And as a reasonably intelligent and relatively independent thinking person, it did not take me too long to put two and two together and to see the obvious parallels between the British Empire and the modern U.S. And to come to the conclusion that, yes, the U.S. most definitely is an empire. And then over time, my thinking has evolved on when it became an empire. And gradually, I pushed that answer back until basically my answer is it always has been an empire. But more on that later. What the hell, you might ask? American empire ain't no such thing. After all, you know, we don't usually call the U.S. an empire, so how can it be an empire? Well, maybe the sort of people who listen to my show and who like it enough to want to support my work financially and who want to listen to this audio lecture course are already predisposed to recognize, at least to some degree, that the U.S. is an empire. But you can imagine that sort of question being asked, that stunned denialism on the part of much of the American masses, if you were to assert the obvious truth that the U.S. is in fact an empire. So, let me throw two more quotes your way here. First one. A kind of basic consensus definition would be that an empire is a large political body which rules over territories outside its original borders. An empire is a large composite multi-ethnic or multinational political unit, usually created by conquest, and divided between a dominant center and subordinate, sometimes far distant, peripheries. And that comes from historian Stephen Howe in his book Empire, A Very Short Introduction. Stephen Howe is an expert on empires. In particular, he came from studying the British Empire and then has also studied and written on comparative imperialism, including this little book, Empire, a very short introduction. So, 
I ask you, does the United States check all the boxes in Stephen Howe's definition of empire in general? Large political body rules over territories outside its original borders? Check. Large composite multi-ethnic or multinational political unit? Check. Created by conquest? Check. Divided between a dominant center and subordinate, sometimes far distant peripheries? Check. We've checked all the boxes. And one more quote. The beginning of wisdom is to call things by their proper names. And that, of course, is Confucius. And now I'm going to pop in a little audio clip here of historian Neil Ferguson, who is, in my mind, about as interesting and independent as an intellectual can be while still being pretty well plugged into the establishment. I by no means always agree with him on everything, but I always find him worth reading and listening to. Neil Ferguson has written on both the British and American empires, and he makes a very convincing argument in my mind that A, the U.S. is unquestionably an empire, but that B, it is a very strange empire in that it's an empire in denial. And I'll let you hear his take on it in an interview from way, way back in 2003. And of course, Ferguson is the one being interviewed. You can tell it's him because he has the Scottish accent. So... Let's hear what Neil Ferguson has to say about America and its the fact that it's an empire, its denialism of this, where that may come from, and how much the U.S. is similar to other empires, especially the British. Tonight, and I'd like to start off uh, with the first question, which is, uh, is the United States the center of an empire? Is there really such a thing as an American empire, in your view? Well, Walter, the only truly amazing thing to me is that Americans don't admit this. Uh, <laughs> and it, 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 in many ways, this, I think, is the first empire in world history based on a collective suspension of disbelief <laughs> on the part of the imperial power itself. Uh, now, this could be the basis for a new and uncanny form of imperial strength. After all, if you don't even admit you have an empire, quite potentially you could, you could extend an empire even further than those who overtly do it. Uh, but my instinct about this is that if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, then there's a fairly good chance that it, it is a duck. And I thought I would illustrate this point uh, with a little quotation. Uh, and I'd like to invite you to, to speculate as to when this uh, document was written. It'll be very brief. Our armies do not come into your cities and lands as conquerors or enemies, but as liberators. It is not the wish of our government to impose upon you alien institutions. It is our wish that you should prosper even as in the past, when your lands were fertile, when your ancestors gave to the world literature, science, and art, and when Baghdad City was one of the wonders of the world. It is our hope that the aspirations of your philosophers and writers shall be realized, and that once again the people of Baghdad shall flourish, enjoying their wealth and substance under institutions which are in consonance with their sacred laws and their ideals. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, then uh, I have a shock in store, because that wasn't President Bush in an uncannily eloquent moment. <laughs> It wasn't the first draft of his address to the Iraqi people that got torn up when, when W actually read, read it through. That was General F.S. Maud in April 1917 
uh, issuing a proclamation to the people of Baghdad following a lightning military campaign by British forces that had swept up uh, from Kut to Baghdad uh, and placed Mesopotamia under British rule, uh, which it would remain under uh, on and off, indirectly and directly, for the better part of uh, 41 years. So the key point I'd like to suggest is that uh, this is not the first Anglophone empire to invade, let us say, Iraq uh, in the name of the liberation of the people of Iraq. Uh, even the, if you like, denial that an invasion is an invasion, that an occupation is an occupation, this denial is something that the British uh, long ago perfected uh, as part of the rhetoric of liberal empire. And my sense is that one very strong argument uh, in favor of Americans reading my book is that they will begin to recognize what hitherto they have so brilliantly avoided admitting to themselves, namely the true extent uh, of the resemblance between the first and the second great Anglophone empires. It's obvious, of course, to any Briton why Americans are in denial about the fact that they are an empire. It was, I think, obvious uh, to Reinhold Niebuhr when he pointed out at the end of the Second World War that the Republic now really had become an empire. This insight, by the way, is entirely familiar to all Europeans and only remarkable to Americans. The point, of course, is that, uh, and I try to show this in the book, this country's creation myth uh, is that of an anti-imperial, uh, particularly anti-British imperial republic. And it's extremely hard when you're when your high schools teach the history uh, of American independence as a war of liberation uh, against an evil empire, to come to terms with the terrible reality, A, that that was a civil war, not a war of independence, a war within a greater British-speaking, English-speaking British empire. Uh, and secondly, to come to terms with the fact that this republic, almost from its very inception, began to behave uh, like another British empire. Think of the expansion of the frontier on the North American landmass itself. Think only of the annexation of the Republic of Texas, interestingly, where your president uh, himself comes from. The process of imperial expansion has almost been unceasing in American history. Uh, since 1898, when the Hawaii was added and the Philippines were temporarily added to the American empire, it's been a, a, a sustained tale of expansion, sporadic, occasionally unsuccessful, but expansion into territory, military interventions in sovereign states. What is happening at the moment is only novel, it seems to me, in one respect so far. It's only novel in that there are elements within the present American administration that more or less admit that this is an imperial project. I can think of at least one senior figure in the Defense Department who only, what, 10 years ago, uh, spoke the unspeakable uh, when Paul Wolfowitz said what many people were thinking in the intellectual circles around him, that it was time to get real about empire. Now, that cost him a temporary career setback, uh, but it seems to me the really significant thing at the moment is not what's happening. Interventions in sovereign states, Bill Clinton did it in uh, the case of Yugoslavia, without even pretending to get a UN resolution. Now, what is novel now is that some people in positions of power in Washington are daring to admit to themselves and indeed to others uh, that this is an imperial project. And my sense is that coming out of denial may actually 
be a healthy rather than unhealthy development as it usually is in cases of uh, psychological difficulty. Now I want to go over some of my main theses or arguments in this course. And so first thing I want to do, just to make sure that we're all clear, because you might have a vague idea, but you might not know exactly, I want to define the term thesis and also the term argument, which when used in an academic or intellectual context is a synonym for thesis. When we use the word argument in an academic or intellectual context, it doesn't have the same connotations and denotations even as when we use the word argument in our sort of daily colloquial lives, where it often means a heated disagreement, possibly edging on or going into shouting or even physical violence. But thesis or argument in an intellectual context is defined as per dictionary.com the following way. A proposition stated or put forward for consideration, especially one to be discussed, improved, or to be maintained against objections. Okay, so the way I like to think about a thesis is a thesis is a claim you're making that is debatable. So it, it can't be something that's clearly self-evidently blatantly true or false but that is potentially debatable by reasonable people who have at least some knowledge about a subject. So, the Allies won World War II is not a thesis, because that is a self-evidently, blatantly factual statement that no reasonable or informed person could really dispute, unless they wanted to get into, you know, non-literal meanings of the word, you know, who won the war kind of thing. But, if you had a particular claim of why the Allies won, or conversely, why the Axis lost World War II, that would be a thesis. That would be something that potentially an informed person could disagree with you on. And then in order for a thesis to be strong, it needs to be backed up by a substantial amount of reason and evidence and so forth. So now that we've defined the term thesis or argument, what are some of my main arguments in this course? Well, first off, the United States is an empire. This is somewhat controversial, especially among the general public, though it's much less so among serious scholars and intellectuals. I agree with most of what Neil Ferguson had to say in that clip I played for you a few minutes ago, and the main difference between myself and him when it comes to overall analysis of the American empire is he seems to have a more ambivalent view of it in which he sees more good coming out of it, or potentially possible to come out of it, than bad than I do. He is less across-the-board anti-imperial than I am, although he's willing to admit that the U.S. empire has maybe not done as much good as it could have, and these sorts of things, and he also seems to believe that if only the U.S. would admit it was an empire, it could actually do empire more skillfully and more, I don't know, benevolently, liberally, something like that, which I wouldn't go along with, but anyway. So the United States is an empire. Again, controversial amongst the general public, not terribly controversial amongst serious scholars who actually deal with this sort of question. Next main argument that I'll be making overarching this course, the United States always has been an empire. And again, I'm actually fairly in agreement with Ferguson on this as well. Since independence was secured in 1783... And in reality, you could go back even further to the founding of Virginia and Massachusetts in the early 17th century. And you could say that they were imperial when they were even still part of the British Empire. They were carrying out imperial 
programs and policies and behaving from an imperial mindset and imperial habits. Now, this claim that the United States always has been an empire is a little bit more controversial. And many intellectuals who are willing to accept that the U.S. is an empire in the present era, and perhaps who are willing to admit that for close to a century or even more, it's been an empire, they will nonetheless think or argue that the U.S. didn't become an empire until relatively recently. Perhaps around the 1890s and early 1900s with things like the Spanish-American War, the acquisition of the Philippines and Hawaii and Puerto Rico and the Panama Canal Zone and so forth. And they'll say this was the beginning of the American Empire, the same time period when the U.S. began to build a more substantial blue water navy and increase its interventionism into Latin America and the Caribbean and so forth. Others would argue that even this was a temporary, short-lived aberration, a deviation from the isolationism that they believe was sort of the default setting of America until relatively recently. And they might not place the beginning of U.S. empire until the end of World War II and the beginning of the Cold War in some cases. But that's not my argument. My argument is it always has been. Next argument, the United States was born of one of the most significant empires in history— that being, of course, the British Empire, and that despite the kind of pretense of rebellion and rejection, in many ways, the American ruling elite never shook off most of the legacies, especially the habits and mindset of empire building that they had inherited from being British imperialists. Remember, before their rebellion, the American colonists were and had been for multiple generations, loyal subjects of the British Empire and loyal foot soldiers of it. They were the frontier, frontline shock troop colonists of that empire, manning its outposts against hostile natives and rival European empires in the neighborhood. They were both consciously and unconsciously inculcated in and steeped in and repeatedly acted out the ideology the operating system, if you will, of imperialism, which centered around perpetual expansionism. By the way, I always like to use a starfish analogy to describe the United States' British imperial origins and the effect that this had on it ever since. What happens when you chop off a leg from a starfish? Well, for starters, the leg grows back on the original starfish, but... More to the point, more important for my analogy here, the leg that has been severed off also grows into a whole new starfish. And what I'm saying with this analogy is that the United States was a leg of a starfish called the British Empire, and that when it was severed off, it didn't grow into something totally new and totally different. Instead, it grew into a whole new starfish. In other words, it grew into a whole new Anglophone empire. Now, this new empire was distinct and separate from the original one, but it was clearly very closely related to it and more similar to the thing it had been severed from than it was different from it, all things considered. Americans often like to tell ourselves that the War of Independence was an anti-imperialist war, but it really wasn't, at least not for the most part. It wasn't ultimately about rejecting the notion of imperialism and imperial expansion and all those sorts of things. It was just a disagreement between the homegrown American colonial elites and 
the elites back in the imperial metropolis of the mother country about how exactly the empire should be run, at least in regard to North America. But the American rebels never really rejected empire and imperialism as concepts and as national programs or strategies or ideologies and so forth. They just rejected having themselves, the elites of North America, being subordinate to a distant imperial metropolis, being subordinate parts of an empire of which they were just the flunkies or pawns, and where they were under the control of imperial elites far away in London. They wanted to become the elites of their own empire. They didn't really reject empire as such. Now, they like to style their empire as an empire of liberty and so forth, but of course the British had already for quite some time been speaking of their empire in those terms, and had been in their own propaganda version of themselves, saying that their empire was superior to all of the other European empires because it was much more of an empire of liberty than, say, the Spanish or the French or whoever. Now, I will say that the American empire has clearly gone through different phases, as all empires that last for more than a few generations will in which different forms and strategies and manifestations of imperialism were emphasized or de-emphasized. But, again, I don't think that the U.S. has ever not been an empire for any portion of its history, and that this, to a large extent, can ultimately be traced back to the British imprint that never went away. The last main thesis or argument that I'm going to say here that overarches this course is that the American power elite, who are really the only ones who on net benefit significantly from the American empire being an empire, they want the American masses to remain in denial about the reality that the U.S. is an empire. And there's a very good reason for this. Because as long as the American people are for the most part in denial that they live under and are supporters of an empire, long as they do not recognize that fact, then they simply can't have any sort of real debate or discussion about whether or not they want to remain an empire. So it's kind of like if you're an addict, you can't debate or decide whether you might want to quit being an addict if you're still completely in denial that you have a problem and that you are an addict at all. So the elites, along with their collaborators and compatriots and puppets and mouthpieces and useful idiots in places like the entertainment industry and the so-called news media, are very, very good at creating and buttressing this denialism of imperial reality to the point that the vast majority of the American masses, by whom I don't mean just poor people, but everyone who's not really of the, of the truly elite class, have completely internalized this imperial denialism, and they will horizontally enforce it against anyone who makes the sorts of arguments that I'm making here. Now, again, most of the people listening to this probably are sympathetic to these arguments and are not going to attack me for them. But you can imagine if I went to, I don't know, a NASCAR race, a 4th of July parade, a Veterans Day celebration, pick your venue that's likely to be particularly patriotic. And you can just picture me there making very calm, rational arguments based on lots of reason and evidence, saying the United States is an empire. And you could imagine the results that I would get in terms of people's responses. I'd be lucky to not, you know, get strung up or something or get beat up. 
So it shows you how effective the elites have been in inculcating this imperial denialism. And of course, part of it is that it goes along with what the masses want to believe, because of course they want to believe that their country is unique and special and exceptional and can't possibly be imperial because that means that then they're the bad guys and everyone wants to believe that they're living under the good guy government and serving the good guy government and so forth. This is particularly powerful if you and much of your family are or have been in the military. The last thing you want to do is realize that, like, you know, you're really more like the stormtroopers than you are like the rebels, to use the Star Wars analogy. Now, I want to define a few basic imperial terms. And first, I want to use Stephen Howe to define the terms empire and imperialism. And then I'm going to get into a few other related terms and kind of give you my working definitions of them. So for the term empire itself, I will reiterate Stephen Howe's definition of it because I think it hits most of the main points pretty concisely but well. Stephen Howe writes, quote, A kind of basic consensus definition would be that an empire is a large political body which rules over territories outside its original borders. Then a little bit later on in the same book, he writes, An empire is a large, composite, multi-ethnic, or multinational political unit, usually created by conquest and divided between a dominant center and subordinate, sometimes far-distant, peripheries. End quote. And the latter part of that definition, where he talks about the center versus peripheries, that's one of those, you know, I mentioned how there are different kind of analytical tools and terminology and things developed by social science disciplines that study empire. And one of this is this distinction between center and periphery. And sometimes the center is also referred to as the metropolis or the imperial metropolis. The idea that there's clearly a hierarchy in which some parts of the empire are more powerful and important than others. And the most powerful of all is the center or metropolis which is a particular city or at least region where most of the power is concentrated over the rest of the empire. So that's an idea that we'll probably hit on at various points throughout the course. And I'm also going to lean on Stephen Howe to define imperialism. His definition is a little bit messy, but perhaps this is unavoidable. Stephen Howe writes, quote, Imperialism is used to mean the actions and attitudes which create or uphold such big political units, i.e. empires, but also less obvious and direct kinds of control or domination by one people or country over others. End quote. So imperialism is kind of how you make and run and maintain and exploit an empire. And this includes not only institutions and policies and strategies and things, but also attitudes and so forth. Ideology. Beliefs. Now, there are many different forms this can take, including such things as economic imperialism and cultural imperialism, as well as political imperialism. Now, I want to mention a few terms, kind of two sides of imperialism or two methods of imperialism. And most empires historically that have been of any significant size or lasted for any significant period of time have used both at various points in their existence and sometimes employ both simultaneously in different places. And that is this distinction that's often made by imperial historians and analysts between direct imperialism and indirect imperialism. And I don't think Stephen Howe ever gets into this distinction explicitly. 
at least as I was going back through the book Empire, a very short introduction, I couldn't locate it if he does. But it's something I ran across enough, particularly in my studies of the British Empire and also somewhat in my studies of the American Empire. So I'm going to give you kind of my working definition or distinction between direct versus indirect imperialism. Sometimes you will see this put in terms of direct versus indirect rule. Okay. So direct imperialism or direct rule is when an empire, a large, powerful political authority takes over a place and its people and resources and does so in an overt and formalized sort of a way where it says like, this is now a territory of ours, a province of ours, a colony of ours, whatever the terminology is. And, you know, in modern times, like it's now, you know, under your flag. So direct imperialism, for example, would be when the United States seized the Philippines after the Spanish-American War and made it an American territory. So it's official. There's no denying that this place is now part of politically, legally, formally this outside power that one way or another took it over. Direct imperialism or direct rule. And then there's indirect imperialism or indirect rule. And this is where you have this unequal power relationship where a large, powerful, you know, imperial country doesn't officially take over a place and call it one of its territories or provinces or colonies, doesn't officially, you know, wave its flag over that territory. And legally, formally speaking, this place is still a separate, distinct, sovereign country with its own government. But in reality, in practical terms, the smaller, weaker, more subordinate country is clearly under the control of the more powerful, dominant imperial country, to the point where, in its most strong forms, indirect imperialism usually means that there is a government for the the place that's being ruled, but that it has to operate within very narrow confines approved by the more powerful overseeing imperial government. And if it doesn't, it can expect to have serious problems, including even having its regime overthrown and replaced by a sock puppet regime that is more agreeable to the imperial power. So to give you an example of this happening in the case of the American Empire, I would say that Cuba, from really from the Spanish-American War, but, but officially from about 1901 with the Platt Amendment, Cuba from, say, either 1898 or 1901, take your pick, until Castro's revolution in 1959, Cuba was an informal imperial possession of the United States or was treated as an informal colony. In other words, the United States was practicing indirect rule or indirect imperialism in Cuba, wherein Cuba was still nominally its own country with its own flag, still nominally had its own government, etc. But U.S. business interests came to own or control much of the island's valuable resources, and the U.S. government clearly was dominating the Cuban government to the point where anytime the Cuban government didn't fly right by Uncle Sam's preferences, it could expect to face serious consequences and possibly even some sort of regime change sponsored by Uncle Sam. So another way, I think I kind of mentioned this in passing already, another way that this term, this distinction between direct and indirect imperialism or direct and indirect rule is articulated is through formal versus informal imperialism. So that's another way that 
people, including myself, will sometimes put it, they'll refer to formal imperialism, or this is the formal empire, and then informal imperialism. These are the places that are ruled indirectly by an imperial power. So again, the Philippines from the Spanish-American War until shortly after World War II would be formal American imperialism. It would be direct imperialism on the part of America. And then ever since, it's been indirect on the Philippines. And then you've got Cuba, which, say, from about 1901 to 1959 is informal or indirect part of the American empire. And then I want to mention a few terms that are, as far as I'm aware, ones that I've kind of coined in my own thinking and writing about this topic and preparing for this course and what I've said to students in my you know regular college courses that I teach. And that is, I make a distinction as well between two processes of empire building, one of which I refer to as external imperialism and one of which I refer to as internal imperialism. And by external imperialism, I mean the imperialism that is directed at enlarging the territory, population, and resources that are under an imperial regime's control. In other words, this is about a state expanding and taking over more things that could be taking them over in both a formal sense or an informal sense. But the idea is we're talking about like literal expansion of the territory, resources, and people that are in your control if you're an imperial regime, part of the political class of that regime. Now, what do I mean by internal imperialism? Well, here I mean the imperialism that is directed not at expanding control like geographically, but at deepening the degree of control and exploitation over the territory and populations and resources that you already have formally or informally under your control. So in other words, you can think of internal imperialism, I'm talking about consolidation of control over something that you already have some amount of control over. So the state operating in an arena and over people and resources over which it had already established some form of either direct or formal or indirect and informal rule, the state is intensifying its ability to control and manipulate and exploit those resources that are already under its control, including its human resources. So that's what I mean by internal imperialism. And this can include various types of cultural imperialism in which the center or metropolis of the empire is, through many and various means, carrying out a process of minimizing or maybe even trying to wipe out and replace localized non-metropolis cultures within the realm and doing its best to inculcate its own culture and values on the peripheries of the empire as best it can. This would also, of course, include crisis and leviathan type stuff in which the state is enlarging in size and power over society and economic resources and so on of its territories. And so as a result, it is possible for an imperial state to go through periods of time where its external imperialism might be slow or even temporarily halted, but its internal imperialism might be increasing dramatically or vice versa. And also, of course, there might be periods where external and internal imperialism are both growing like mad. And I'm going to be covering aspects of both internal and external imperialism in this course. All right, well, we'll stop it there. Thanks for listening. Now, keep in mind that this is not the full Lecture Zero for Rise of the American Empire. This is only slightly over half of the total lecture. So if you want to 
get the whole thing and have it ad free. And you want to be able to access all subsequent DHL lectures and courses as I make them. Again, go over to Patreon or Subscribestar and sign up to support the Dangerous History Podcast at $15 per month or higher. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the Dangerous History Podcast, and I hope that you found some value in it. If you have and you'd like to contribute to my work, there are many different ways that you can help out. One that costs you nothing but maybe a little bit of time and effort is to help spread the word about the show to anyone you think might be interested in it. There are also a bunch of ways that you can financially assist me to continue doing the work that I do and to continue making it better as best I can as time goes on. The most helpful way and the one that gives you potentially a lot of value back in return is to sign up for a recurring contribution via either Patreon or Subscribestar, and the links to my Patreon page and my Subscribestar page will be in the show notes of this episode. I now have multiple levels of support via either Patreon or Subscribestar. For $2 per month, you are at the Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, and you will get access to all of the vintage DHP episodes, meaning the first 52 episodes of the show, which are no longer available to the general public. And of course, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to keep this podcast going, and you'll have my gratitude for doing so. For only $5 per month, you will be at the Journeyman Scholar Warrior level. And for this, you'll receive the benefits of the $2 Apprentice Scholar Warrior level, plus access to special bonus DHP episodes that are available nowhere else as well as access to ad-free regular DHP episodes as they come out, and you will be eligible to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. For $15 per month, you will be at the Scholar Warrior level, and you'll get all the benefits of the Journeyman level, plus access to Dangerous History Lyceum course lectures as they are produced and released. And for $25 per month, you'll be at the Master Scholar Warrior level, where you will get all the benefits of the $15 Scholar Warrior level, plus additional benefits still to be determined, but probably including but not limited to a regular live chat. You can also make one-time or recurring contributions to the Dangerous History Podcast via PayPal or Bitcoin. And another great way you can help out my work is by clicking on any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website to do your Amazon.com shopping. And if you buy stuff after going through any of those affiliate links, I get a little commission at no additional cost to you. And this helps me to buy supplies, research materials, etc. to keep making the podcast and making the podcast better. I also have an Amazon wish list of things to help me out with the Dangerous History podcast and related productions that I put in the show notes of episodes. It's mostly research materials, but also there's some stuff in there, hardware for audiovisual production, etc. So if you want to order me something off there, that also helps out. Your support and contributions are what keeps this thing going and keeps me doing the work that I do. So I hope that you will consider helping out. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast. As always, doing my best to help you learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.